I was pulled in multiple directions this morning to preach. I really struggled as to which way to go. I had some things I wanted to preach on. And, uh, I got a phone call Saturday uh, from someone who visited the meeting um, Wednesday night. And it was about um, the role of praying in tongues. And, and uh, as we talked about that, uh, this person tends another church. And I really began to see maybe... Maybe we need some teaching on that. Maybe we need to see how do you do that? How do you walk in that? Because a lot of people got baptized in the Holy Spirit. That immersion is not to be a one-time experience. That is to characterize us as people who are allowing the Holy Spirit to move in our lives when He wants to move. And I just believe He is active and is always moving. The difference is when we move with him or if we're going to move with him. There's a verse in Hebrews chapter 10, and that's where I want to go this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, so I, I'll probably do some preaching, teaching on um, the role of, of praying in tongues and the baptism with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Uh, glossi is what it is in, in the original language. It's a tongue that, a language that you don't know, but the Holy Spirit supplies. But I wanted to share a message on this particular theme this morning. And um, I'm going to give somebody a chance to uh, find a phrase in this chapter. And when I say the phrase, you're free to... Anybody jumps up, I want you to tell me what verse it's in. A new and living way. That's the phrase. Five, six, seven... Eight, nine. Anybody found it yet? Ten. Hebrews ten. What? Anybody? Twenty. Zane found it. It's verse twenty. I wish I had a prize for you, Zane. I've already given out my money. You know, I was like, oh, I have to come up with something else. This is an interesting phrase because it's tucked into something that I don't think we really pay that much attention to. I don't know how much Hebrews is on our radar at all as far as reading devotionally. Usually we like to go to Psalms and, you know, things like that. But Hebrews is a very important book because it takes what God did in the Old Testament and how all of that was to look in the New Testament, and a lot of this was going to be a change. If you just look at the term itself, a new and living way, what does that say to you? A new and living way has been opened up to us. What does that make you think of? If you have a new way, there must have been an old way. And if this is a living way, the old must have been lacking in living. You know, I'll never forget when uh, they built the Dames Point Bridge in Jacksonville, Florida, and we lived on the north side toward the airport in Ocean Way, and uh, you had to go all the way around the city to go to Mayport Naval Base. Before that, they had a ferry. I'm, I'm, this is modern-day living, okay? This is not back in the 1920s. You could get to Mayport through Hexer Drive on a ferry. We've done that many times, didn't we? Some of these guys would want to come to church at our church, and, and uh, they'd be stationed on Mayport, and it depended on how that ferry was running, whether we got there on time with them, because they needed a way. 
When they built that bridge, I'm telling you what, people were so excited over a bridge. Because all of those that went over there didn't have to wait on the ferry crossing to come and get them. And this is really kind of what, it, you know, appeals to my mind is this is a new and living way. It must have been that the old way really was not cutting it. And it wasn't. Now, we're going to see this. And if you're reading in the King James, the entire passage goes like this. By a new and living way which he has consecrated. NIV says open. Open does. A new and living way which he hath consecrated us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. In NIV it says curtain. And I really don't like that translation because it's veil. And I'll, I'll mention this later on. That word is only used five times in all the New Testament. That word for, it's translated curtain. If you have it in NIV, it doesn't say curtain. It's veil. The other four times that that word is used is one time in Hebrews 9, and the other times are in once in Matthew, once in Mark, and once in Luke, and I bet you can guess when it was used. When the veil was ripped from top to bottom, when Jesus died on the cross, some of them have him shouting out a loud shout, and he gave up his spirit. He committed his spirit into the hands of his Father. And every one of, of those synoptic gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, said, and then the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. And in Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10 is the only other place that that word it really is a better rendering in the King James saying veil. That is to say his body, his flesh. This, this, when you go to the entire chapter, it is focusing on that old way over in the Old Testament. And I'm going to refer to Leviticus 16 here in just a moment. But all the nations that Israel had around them had their gods. They worshiped their gods. Philistines, I think Dagon was their god, right? And everybody had their idols and they worshiped and they built temples to those idols. I'm going to tell you something. The tabernacle that God gave Moses to build was not for them to worship the tabernacle or to worship anything inside the tabernacle. They were to worship the one whose presence lived in the tabernacle on the mercy seat, that inner sanctum of the holy place, the most holy place. And this is another reason why you just know that God didn't give them the Ark of the Covenant to worship the Ark of the Covenant because nobody saw the Ark of the Covenant. And we say, well, the high priest saw it once a year, but I'm going to touch on that here in just a little bit. But his view of the Ark of the Covenant was really not clear. So there was an, an item for them to worship. All the other nations... They worship their God. You remember when ill-advised, these guys got the Ark of the Covenant and went out into battle thinking that just the Ark of the Covenant being with them was going to defeat the Philistines. you remember that? And uh, the most terrible thing happened is that they lost the battle because the Ark of the Covenant was not inherently lucky, for lack of a better word. They were disobeying God. They were not supposed to have it out there. And God allowed the Philistines to capture the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Philistines' mind, they had captured Israel's God. Because they thought Israel felt about that 
And I think they probably gave that rendering when, that, hey, let's take the Ark of the Covenant out in the battle and we will win the battle just because the Ark of the Covenant is with us. And they were treating the Ark of the Covenant like an, like an idol. And so they captured the Ark of the Covenant. I love this story because they decided to kind of like put Israel's God inside their temple to their God and to show that their God had captured Israel's God. And they went in the next morning and Dagon was on his face. Parts of him was broken off. And so they kind of cleaned that up. And all of a sudden they started breaking out with a malady. I don't really know what that malady was. They said something about tumors. There's, I, I just think this would be perfect, what I'm about to tell you. Some people believe that it's, the rendering of it is that they all broke out with a malady of hemorrhoids. That's right. And to make it even more interesting, for them to show their repentance... They took gold replicas of whatever tumors it was and put it on the ox cart that was supposed to, and, and to see if this was really this thing belonging to God and they shouldn't have it. They didn't just put oxen in front of them. They put calves from oxen and says if those calves will walk away from their, their milk mother and carry this ark into Israel, we know for sure that... Israel's God is greater than our God. Well, that's not easy to figure out because old Dagon was on his face with his stuff breaking the, off of him. And this shows you that Israel's system was really, sometimes they adhered to it, sometimes they didn't, sometimes they were true and authentic, sometimes they weren't. And at this point, they were not authentic in how they looked at it. So if you look at verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 10, it says that this was just a shadow this was just a replication of something that was coming that would really work. And it was about the tabernacle. It was about the two rooms, the holy room, which had the table of showbread, the menorah, and the, uh, altar, the, the altar of incense. These three items was in the first room, and, and priests could go in there all the time. They could go in and renew the bread, the showbread, the 12 loaves of bread. They made sure the oil was in the menorah for it to be lit. They made sure that there was coals on the altar of incense. And all, all throughout the week, they were going to that room. That, there was room behind that with that veil that is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There was a veil there, and no one could go past that veil except once a year, and it could only be one person. And it was a high priest. And he went, that was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur in Hebrew. It was the Day of Atonement, and this is what he had to do. He had to bathe himself, put on special garments, and he had to kill a bull for his own sin, take the blood of that bull and a censer with coals in it and sweet incense. And when he stepped behind that veil... He had to throw the incense on that censer to create a smoke covering over the altar, over the uh, Ark of the Covenant. And it says in Leviticus, so that he wouldn't die. So even he didn't have a good glimpse of the Ark of the Covenant. And he was supposed to sprinkle the blood of that bull for his own sins on the Ark, go back out, and then it was for national Israel. 
He'd choose two goats. One would be the Lord's goat. The other would be the, the scapegoat. We still use that term today, scapegoat. The Lord's goat was to be killed. And he would take the blood from that goat and do the same thing with that censer and smoke. And he'd go behind that veil and he'd, he would sprinkle seven times on the Ark of the Covenant to show the seriousness of Israel's need for forgiveness. And then he would come back out. He'd take both of his hands and he would lay his hands on the scapegoat, the live goat. And he would confess the sins of the nation over that goat. I don't know if that goat was a lucky one or not. Because what was going about to happen to him was, who knows? But a person was designated to take that goat and lead that goat far enough out of the camp of Israel, so far that it can never make its way back. And that was the symbol of carrying Israel's sins away from them. Even when that person came back, he had to take change clothes, wash himself. It was all this seriousness of meeting God. And if you look at it, it says this was not effective. One of the first things you see in verse 1 through verse 4, I'm going to just read them for you. It says the law is only a shadow of good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. This is, he's really saying, but this really didn't work. The old way didn't work. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. In other words, he's saying at the start of this, the old way could never really wash away people's sins. And you see this theme other, otherwise in verse 2, would they not have stopped being offered? If it did work, why would they have to repeat it next year? If it really did that, they could just be done with it. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible. Look at verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible for the old system to adequately deal with sin. It was temporary. So why did they do it? Because God was always doing things in types, he was showing them that one day something would happen by a priest who would not only sacrifice, would bring his own blood for the remission of sins. And even in that system, the only way any of them got any reconciliation with God was by faith. By trusting in what was happening inside there that God was actually embracing them as his people. Nobody was justified any other way but by faith, right? And that is shown in Hebrews, that in chapter 11, it gives kind of like this hall of fame for faith people. Nobody was justified before God without faith. The sacrifices of the animals did not take away their sin. It was impossible. It was faith in the mercy of God, faith in the promises of God. And folks, that hasn't changed. Look down to verse 5. Therefore, when Christ, here's the shift from the old way to the new way. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. In other words, animal sacrifices is not what you want, but a body you prepared for me. Remember the Holy Spirit or the, the angel telling 
Mary, that that holy thing which is in you is going to be arranged by the Holy Spirit. That holy thing, that holy conception was that body that way beforehand, God said, I prepared a body for me, a body that would be the atoning sacrifice. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you are not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written in me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And first he says, this is verse 4, or verse 8 rather. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire. God didn't really want it that way. Nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. The blood of animals were pointing to the one who would permanently blot out sin, Jesus. And it was not the life of the blood even of a man, a mortal man, because man is sinful. Animals are, there's not a perfect sacrifice. It had to be a sacrifice of a sinless man with no blemishes, no sin, who could take away the sins of this world. The incarnate Son of God. Jesus set aside the first way in order to establish the second way. And I want you to see verse 10. And by that will, by the, he said, I've come to do your will, Lord. By that will. If you just circle those two in verse 9. I've come to do your will. And he says, then by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Wow. Do you believe that? Anybody in here feel holy? You know, I really don't know how it feels to be holy. I know how it feels to accept that he says I am. This is not about feeling. And one of the things that we heard shared about this past week is that if you came, you know that Dale Everett didn't preach like screaming, hollering, yelling, jump up and down. He's just as, he could be having a conversation with you outside the church and be just as intense as what his preaching was. Because I know we sit out in the truck and talked about 10, 30, 11 o'clock every night after just about it. Just conversation, just talking. It is not how we feel, it's what we believe. And that does not simplify it, that elevates it. Because what we believe is much more important than what we feel. And he said here that we are made holy. We are made holy in God's eyes through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11, day after day, day after day, and later on it says, again and again he offers the same sacrifices. The people in the tabernacle offered the same thing day after day, year after year, again and again, which can never take away sins. Verse 11, verse 12, but when this priest, Christ, has offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because there was nothing else to do. And that's what he's given to us, a finished work of redemption. And the only thing he waits in verse 13, the only thing he waits is for all the enemies that oppose him to be finally made his footstool. That's all he's waiting for. He's not waiting for anything to be done to reconcile us. It's all been done. We either receive it and believe it and walk in it or we don't. 
And that's not frivolous. That's not making light of it. It's a serious thing to follow the Lord. You have been made holy, separated unto Him, to adore Him, to worship Him, to stand in awe of Him, to be overwhelmed by Him, and to be humbled by His power and who He is. Verse 11 reminds us that the sacrifices stipulated in Leviticus could never fix the problem. Jesus, this priest in verse 12, offered himself. Verse 19, I'm going to jump a few verses here if you'll follow me. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Boy, just pause right there and think about what you just read. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that inner sanctum, that place that only one person could go once a year in the old way and then with trepidation. The scariest day of the year for the high priest was that day because he couldn't mess up. He couldn't come in there a different way or alter it. He couldn't even forget to put the incense on the censer because he would die if he got a full glimpse of what he was looking at. You think about that. He says, we have been given this access. We ought to have confidence to enter that most holy place by the blood, that presence of God by the blood of Jesus. That room where the ark was at that was off limits to everybody but the high priest one time a year, we can live there. We can live there. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood, it changes everything, doesn't it? Everything. Not only what we... You know, it's, listen, he doesn't allow us into the holy place. He welcomes us. He wants you to be in communion with him more than you could ever want to be in communion with him. He wants us to come to him. In verse 20 is that passage that that phrase is found by a new and living way open for us through the curtain through the veil his body his flesh open in other words when the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom think about this in a way it was an analogy of what was happening in Jesus his body was torn in a way that invites us to come through his sacrifice into his holiness, into his presence, and to have fellowship with him. The veil was removed from the temple. It was ripped. Now, I'm sure that the Jewish leaders went in and repaired it and put it back to continue on until A.D. 70. It was suspended. And it's been suspended ever since the temple was destroyed. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Let us, let us draw near to God. God welcomes you. He wants you. He wants fellowship with you. With a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Listen, you can have communion with him. The veil is gone. There's a new opening to the holy place, the most holy place, and that is through the blood of Jesus. 
So what blocks us from his presence? What blocks us from the awareness of his presence? I can tell you. It's the veils we put up. It's not a veil he puts up. It's a veil we put up through unforgiveness, through disobedience, through self-love, self-promotion, self-confidence, all of the self-life, pride, arrogance, hypocrisy. If we want to know why we're not sensing and at some point thriving in the presence of the Lord, we don't have to look at God's end of it. We have to look at our end of it and say, Lord, what veils are there? Is pride in my life? Is unforgiveness in my life? Is anger in my life? Is resentment in my life? Where am I? Is disobedience in my life? Is, what is the deal with me, Lord, that I have struggled being in your presence? If anyone, if anyone has said that, I think that's a good thing for you to be dealing with. It's like, Lord, I don't want anything on my part to interfere with your presence, Right? Why are we not more hungry for God? Let me tell you something. The veils that need to be ripped away today are veils that we've put up. The veil of our own life, our own self-life. Who is here today that is ready to get all the veils out of your way? Are you ready to get all the veils out of the way? Who wants to have... I think this is just really overwhelming when I read something like verse 19, have confidence. I don't think most of us have confidence coming into the presence of God. Maybe sometimes when we, when we feel really good, <laughs> I kind of like, well, Lord, I've lived really good the last two days for you. And I just feel like me and you are really, this is great fellowship. You fast for seven days or three days or for a meal and you have this awareness of his presence. And that ought to tell us something. That ought to tell us that it's there for us. If we would pull back from ourselves and repent and turn from all of our self-life and say, Lord, I want every veil in my life to be gone. I want pure communion with you. Restore, Lord, the wonder and the awe that we should have of you. That just the thought of us having communion with you should overwhelm us. Should absolutely take our breath. That the creator of the entire universe sent his only son to rip away the one veil that remained so that way could be open, a new and living way. Lord, I pray for those here this morning. There's veils there. Maybe we're not even aware of the kind of veils we have. But I'm sure, Lord, you're willing to show us so we can renounce it, tear it down, and have communion with you. Good, sweet, undiluted communion with you, Lord. Would you stand with me this morning? 
I've told the praise team, we're, we're just going to have a song here about us coming and saying, Lord, I want straight fellowship with you. I want to have communion with you. And as this song plays, I want us to find a place here to pray and say, open up the way for me, Lord. Your way, your side of it is clear. My side of it, here's the hang-up, right? So you come and see the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Praise God.